We're back, continuing our chat with the late, great Ray Bradbury. You're a teenager. You're, you're, um, you're hanging out with this. The, um, in fact, you become the editor, I guess, from the, the magazine of the Science Fiction Club. That's right, yes. And at one point, uh, a young man comes over from Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's not that much older than you. His name's Jack Parsons, and he talks about how we're going to use rockets to go off into space. Yes, we were all, we invited him to come down and talk to the group. And I think there were about 30 of us there that evening. And he told us about the Rocket Society. And we could join if we, if we wanted to. But the problem was all the meetings were over in Pasadena. And I had no way of getting there. I had no money. And it cost a quarter a meeting to go there. And I had no quarter. It was the middle of the Depression. Right. And I, I, my allowance was about a quarter a week, you see. So I had that one encounter with Parsons, but I, I knew that I was looking at the future. In the years to follow, of course, over at Caltech, they'd formed Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and Aerojet becomes a commercial concern by the early 40s, so rocketry soon does get off the ground. And, and it, it's clear that uh, science fiction was the inspiration for Parsons and others. At least it helped. It put a prop under it. You can't uh, claim that you're a complete... Uh, influence, but we all helped each other. And when you look back on Germany and von Braun in 1928-29, he looked at uh, Fritz Lang's film, The Girl in the Moon, and that influenced him to invent the V-2 rocket. So we had a combination of good and evil here. When we landed on the moon, one of our first landings, and one of our first landings on Mars, with the photographic equipment, that's 20 years ago, Von Braun was standing next to me. And up until that time, I hadn't let myself be introduced to him because I considered his background with Hitler and the V-2 rocket. And then I realized that was stupid of me, making a judgment because history is full of good and evil, of, of men who begin evil and wind up changing mankind forever. So Von Braun is responsible for getting us to the moon and to Mars. So I finally introduced myself, and he he signed an envelope for me, which I still have downstairs, to Ray Bradbury, who, who influenced me. Ah! So, what a joke, huh? What a joke. I understand that he arranged during World War II, Von Braun, to have American science fiction writings sent to him in Sweden through a neutral country. That's right, yes, yes. Did you know uh, Hugo Gernsback and John W. Campbell? Well, that was too soon. Too, yeah. he, he, but he was in, important because he put out a magazine called Science and Invention from about 1914 till 1930. And it was a magazine that combined magic and sorcery with science and invention. And in the middle of the magazine was a whole page of magic by Denninger. And I used to rip those out, and I wanted to be a magician. So you see, I'm a combination, like Hugo Gernsback was, of turning magic into science. 
And that's the history of religion. All the early religions with the Egyptians and the Greeks, they invented mysteries in the middle of the religions to impress people, to scare them, to have sepulchral voices telling people the future. So if you look through the history of magic, you see it changing into science and uh, on the way up to space travel. I guess Arthur C. Clarke is famous for saying that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. There's a lot of that. The magic had to come first because you enthrall yourself. You were affected by mysteries and by romance and by the stunning display of the universe and wanting to be part of it. So that pulls you into the future. One thing that I find intriguing, it's not just people like Parsons and Rockets, but I mean, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a paper. He was, of course, obviously a very famous science fiction writer. He wrote a paper in, I believe, 1945, predicting the uh, geosynchronous orbit for, for, for communication satellites. Isaac Asimov, fantastic science fiction writer, made a career out of writing a lot of science books as well. So it's, it seems to be that science fiction is sometimes leading and science is catching up. They were all scientists, and I, I'm a fantasist. I, I never wrote science fiction. I've only done one science fiction book, and that's Fahrenheit 451, because it's based on fact that could happen. But my Mars is impossible. It's a fantasy. It's in Edgar Rice Burroughs' world. And he influenced me when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And my first novel written when I was 12 is a duplicate of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars. Do you have friendships with both Mr. Mr. Clark and, and Asimov? I didn't know Asimov that well, but Arthur Clark and I have been good friends for 50 years, even though I'm not a scientist. And you said that Heinlein influenced you, you, you quite a bit. He sort of took you under his wing, did he? Yeah, he read something of mine, and he said, hell, I can sell this for you. And he sent it off to Script Magazine, and he made my first sale for me. Wow. So, the, God bless him, I was 18 years old then. So which, Heinlein sold my first story. Which story was that? It was a, a humorous story, that uh, a piece of satire, that there used to be a magazine here called Script. It was like the New Yorker. And by God, they bought my story, and I was on my way. When I left high school, I got a job selling newspapers every afternoon at 4 o'clock for two hours. Before I went to the corner each day, I wrote all day, and in the evening I went to the library. So when I left high school, I went to the library two or three days a week for 10 years. I graduated from the library when I was 28. And when, <laughs> when I told the people up the coast I was lecturing, at a university there a few years ago. At the end of my lecture, he came back with my diploma and graduated me from the library. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's cute. Uh, you, you've been friends for a long time with uh, Norman Corwin, who lives not so far from here. We, had, we were privileged to speak with Mr. Corwin a couple months ago, and, and after we leave here, we're going to go visit him again. Okay. Tell us about, about your, your good friend, Mr. Corwin. Now, he became my closest friend and teacher when I was 26 years old. My first book was published, and I listened to Corwin's shows on radio over the years and was madly in love with his talent. So I got his address, 
and wrote him a letter and sent him a copy of my first book. And I said, Dear Mr. Corwin, if if you like this book half as much as I love you and your shows, please call me. I want to buy you drinks someday. A week later, he called me. He said, You're not buying me drinks. I'm buying you dinner. <laughs> so I went to dinner with him that week. That's 60 years ago. And at dinner, I told him one of my Martian stories. And he said, oh, God, that's great. Do more of those. So I did more. And Norman Corwin was God to me. And he created the Martian Chronicle. I'll be darned. That's how important he is to me. You did some radio dramas back in the 50s. We're big radio fans. Do you think there's a future for some drama in radio again with satellites and the like? It, it comes and goes. And it, it's still alive in, uh, in, in England. It's not doing as well here. They do a lot of repetitions of old shows. But I'd love to have my own radio show again and be able to do what I did on Columbia Broadcasting System and NBC 50 years ago. One of the great characters in science fiction who plays a prominent role in this whole story about Parsons and, and, and rocketry and, and science fiction is, uh, is L. Ron Hubbard. Did you, know, did you know Hubbard at all? No, I didn't, but I've got a story to tell you about him. Dianetics and Scientology were born here in L.A. A lot of people here uh, taught Dianetics, as it was called, and L. Ron Hubbard came and went, and I never met him, but I knew a lot of people who believed in him. So there was a, a big meeting of Dianetic readers at the Shrine Auditorium, in the fall of 1950. And at that time, Fritz Lang, the great German director, was a friend of mine. And he went to that meeting because L. Ron Hubbard was speaking and uh, they were introducing Dianetics to the public. There were 7,000 people at the Shrine Auditorium that evening. And Fritz came back to my house at midnight in a rage. He, the veins were popping on his brow. He was beat red. He was screaming and yelling. And that was Fritz. Fritz was an angry man. And he stormed into my house. He said, those stupid goddamn bastards, they didn't know what they're doing. I said, what happened, Fritz? He said, I went to the Shrine Auditorium. They announced that L. Ron Hubbard would be there. And on the program was going to be the first clear in history. Well, if people don't know what a clear is, that if you read your genetics and really know it, you become a clear. You clear your mind of all of its problems and psychological barriers, and you are a clear. So he said they had this girl on the stage. She was introduced as the first clear in history because of L. Ron Hubbard, and the audience goes wild, uh, applauding, and then... Someone in the audience stands up and said, uh, uh, Miss, you're clear, are you? Yeah. And that means that you have read uh, Dianetics, yeah. And that means if you're clear, you have the most perfect memory in history. Right. Well, can you quote the first paragraph of Dianetics? <laughs> and she, she, she couldn't do it. The damn fools should have had a sh shell in the audience to prepare, huh? And here Fritz 
was in my house tearing his hair out, saying, if I would prepared the evening, it would have been brighter than those stupid bastards. <laughs> so Dianetics almost was destroyed that night because they didn't prepare. But it went on and became Scientology, and now it's all over the world. I'd, I'd heard that night was a fiasco. This is the first first-hand, second-hand report I've gotten. That's right, yeah. It surprised me in doing research, Mr. Bradbury, that you wrote the screenplay for Moby Dick. How, how did that come about? I, I gave all of my books to John Huston one night in January or February of 1959 on St. Valentine's Night, a night to start a romance with your favorite director. And I put all my books out on the table. I said, Mr. Huston, if you like these books half as much, as I love your films, someday call me. So he wrote me from Africa and said, you're right, someday we're gonna to work together, I don't know on what. He came back to LA in August of 1953 and invited me up for drinks at his hotel and all of a sudden said to me, what are you doing during, during the next year? And I said, not much. He said, well, how'd you like to come live in Ireland and write the screenplay of Moby Dick. I was stunned, I was stunned. I said, I don't know, Mr. Houston, I've never been able to read that damn book. And, <laughs> and, and he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that I was saying that. And he said, I tell you what, go home tonight and read as much as you can and come back tomorrow and tell me if you'll help me kill the white whale. So I went home and I said to my wife, pray for me. And she said, why? I said, because I've got to read a book tonight and do a book report tomorrow. And I read as much as I could, and I discovered a remarkable thing that I didn't know, that Shakespeare was all through the book. Hmm. Richard III and King Lear and what have you. And the fact was that Melville never read Shakespeare till he was 30, and then he found an edition of Shakespeare with large type that he could read, and he fell madly in love with, with Shakespeare, and Shakespeare dictated Moby Dick. I'll be so dying. I could read the whole book, but I could surf it, and I could surf Shakespeare. And I went back the next day and took the job of writing Moby Dick. Fascinating. You've received an awful lot of honors over the years, Mr. Bradbury. There's an asteroid that's named after you out orbiting somewhere near the orbit of Mars. You've been honored by the President of the United States. Uh, what has been the most gratifying for you over the years in terms of recognition? No, just going into a library and seeing my books on the shelf near Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, that is the moment for me. Wonderful. Just wonderful. I've led a fantastic life. I've never had an unhappy day in my life. In the last 70 years, I've never had one day of depression or melancholy. You know why? Because every day I do something that I love. I've had bad days when my friends die, when my relatives die. That's different, something else. You can't do anything about that. But every day that I'm all by myself, I'm happy because I'm doing what I should be doing. If everyone in the world could do that, it would be a great world. Ray Bradbury, we thank you very much for speaking with us. Uh, this has been most interesting for us. We hope that we'll be able to, to, to chat again sometime. I hope so. 
And in the meantime, next time you see Norman Corwin, tell him I still love him. All right. Ray Bradbury received an Emmy for his work on The Halloween Tree. He's also received the World Fantasy Award Life Achievement, the Stoker Award Life Achievement, and on November 17, 2004, Ray Bradbury was the recipient of the National Medal of Arts presented by President Bush. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Just want to say one last time, it was such a pleasure to have been able to speak with Ray Bradbury. Let's talk about Homer next with CSUS Professor Emeritus of English, Dr. Catherine Holvine. I promise you, this will be worth your while. If you catch me at the border, I got visas in my name. If you come around here, I'll